Um, there's all there's you know there's all kinds of gateways uh, to come back home, and um, I this is not to do with the Dharma talk at all, but um, I was in uh, Kathmandu in um, Nepal maybe. I don't know, 10 years ago, or maybe a little less, and I was sitting with some very uh, realized masters, and um, they went into the traditional description that uh, the Hinayana model, that's what we're practicing, was a lesser vehicle, and that their vehicle was the better vehicle. And, <laughs> you know, and so um, I put up my hand. <laughs> and I said, how can full awakening be a lesser vehicle? How can that be a lesser vehicle? And they were saying, well, because it doesn't include the bodhisattva vow. And I, was, and I said, when there's no greed, hatred, and delusion anymore, then there's like different movements of that. I'm not fully awakened, so I can't say what that movement is. I haven't died, so I can't say what that movement is. But it just, it just really feels like one of the blessings of having the opportunity to, um, to cross lineages and to come from different traditions, which Larry mentioned uh, yesterday, um, in our greeting, is that it, 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 it becomes the conditions for opening our mind to keep remembering what the heart is for our life. Not the heart of the meditation practice, not the heart of this week, but the heart of our life. What is the heart of our life? You know, what is it? Forget the language of awakening and nirvana. What is it? You know? And however you want to name it, and we name it in particular ways, but you don't have to adopt that. Whatever languaging or naming for you, is to remember that and also to remember that there are many gateways including um, um, put your right hand in and put your right hand out because anything can be an invitation for joy and for presence for cultivating a lighter heart for a joyous heart and we just we can get so stuck, you know, <laughs> in thinking that it's just one way, and it isn't. And it's not our, um, Charmaine and Larry and my, it's not, we're not the way either. The way is your way, and we offer you what has been helpful for, for us, but that's just it. And so much of what is beautiful for me about our community here is that, is that, because we're not straight, we haven't adopted quite so much the straight culture, and then that allows us this possibility of opening as well to look at the culture of practice in not such a, um, uh, in with more exploration and openness, and to remember that it isn't a monocultural process, this awakening. It's a liberation process. And if you're an anarchist, then that means, <laughs> maybe I don't know, are there any anarchists here? Any Marxists here? 
<laughs> then it means that there's many ways, you know, there's just many ways, and uh, that's what, that's how I understand anarchy, that there are many ways that we can respect. So, so then I bow down to your way. However it is that you found your way today, I bow down to it and thank you for it. And then, sort of continuing in the stream, um, um, of um, what it means for us to be sitting here, um, the three of us to be sitting here. Um, for, uh, because sometimes, you know, when you're sitting, and this is a format that I actually don't feel that comfortable in being, um, is, you know, having it so linear with, you know, all rows and then us sitting um, at a higher level. And it, you know, in a sense, it makes sense because then you can see us and that's nice to have that connection. Um, but just to name that um, uh, we're sharing our experience. We're sharing our experience. We've had years of experience, um, all three of us, and we're sharing those years of experience. No better, no worse than you to just years of experience and learning. And so we offer that because as Larry and Charmaine said so beautifully yesterday evening, and in acknowledgement too, that um, some of us, perhaps a little more than others, though all of us in different ways have experienced suffering. And some of us a great deal of suffering. And in Facing that challenge, however it's manifested. Um, we three came to a path that was like, wow, I've gone through, um, I went through traditional Marxism, was part of an underground movement. I went through feminism. I was part of the queer movement and um, the environmental movement. And all of those have been a really important part of my life but nothing addressed my mind. And when I came to the Dharma, I was like, wow, I found something that actually addresses what's going on in my mind. And in addressing it, starting to find a way of alleviating the suffering. And that's actually what these figures here are saying. They're, they're not saying anything other than there is suffering in the world, and there is a way to end it. And that, that um, great saving, that, that heart's release that comes from 
touching places that are beyond suffering and then being inspired to address the suffering that does keep arising you know because that is how it's been for me it's there's been places where um, I have felt um, uh, um, structurally changed in in terms of not having doubt anymore and also find myself as just sharing with Larry on the way here embroiled in a, just a very painful set of relationships that have triggered some deep places around feeling worthless and not seen and invisible and um, I was talking to some people in my group this afternoon or the group not my group the group and and just saying you know we find ourselves circling back over over and over again you know to these places and sometimes it feels like what you know I've been practicing since 1979 is, is this just you know worthless you know how come I'm in this place and not exactly that I feel that but it's easy to get to that place um, um, especially being as newer practitioners and then and then you know that that faith comes up again and says oh oh yeah this this um, process of, of um, ending ending suffering isn't that at least for me that I don't go through places where I am really um, challenged by the tempest of uh, self-hatred or anger or feel wounded and I think what well at least for me the difference is that I don't I don't ever lose faith in the path that is in our possibility to bring presence and loving-kindness to that process so that's that's what I want to share with you this evening is that that there is this anchor or this bedrock that exists in my life and that is also a fundamental part of the formal teachings um, that the Buddha invites us to and so I'm languaging it both in my own experience and then also in the formal teachings as the four foundations of mindfulness uh, which um, isn't quite so poetic and um, but to say that this is that that this is the um, possibility not just for the three of us sitting here you know that already because you've been practicing it's a possibility for each of us to find that bedrock and it is the bedrock that provides the, the, the capacity to live our life in all its challenges and not to lose faith to have that as a confidence and it's a beautiful confidence so um, so now um, as I have started to ad lib let me continue to ad lib and so <laughs> um, begin with a poem that uh, many of you know this is a slightly different translation I forgot the one the translation that I love uh, it's Rumi uh, called the guest house excuse me darling I like that part darling the body is a guest house every morning someone new arrives don't say 
Oh, another weight around my neck, or your guest will fly back to nothingness. Whatever enters your heart is a guest. From the invisible world, entertain it well. Every day and every moment, something comes like an honored guest into your heart. My soul, regard each as a person, for every person is of value. If sorrow stands in the way, it is also preparing the way for joy. It furiously sweeps your house clean in order that some new joy may appear from the source. It scatters the withered leaves from the bough of the heart in order that fresh green leaves might grow. It uproots the old joy so that a new joy may enter from beyond. Sorrow pulls up the rotten root that was veiled from sight. Whatever sorrow takes away or causes the heart to shed, it puts something better in its place especially for one who is certain that sorrow is the servant of the intuitive. Without the frown of clouds and lightning, the vines would be burned by the smiling sun. Both good and bad become guests in your heart, like planets traveling from sign to sign. When something transits your sign, open yourself. So um, the Buddha said in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is really one of the heart teachings of our practice, that if we were to um, practice for seven years mindfulness or presence or awareness or this capacity to allow everything to come into our house or our heart space as a guest and to leave, um, if we were to practice this for seven years, there is no doubt that suffering would end for us, that we would awaken. And he says this in the beginning of the sutta. And then he says, no, but wait, monks, and I'm assuming, but they didn't say nuns. No, wait. Um, I say that if you or we were to practice for seven months <coughs> mindfulness or presence, there is no doubt that awakening would occur. And then he says, but no, wait, not for seven um, months, I say for seven weeks. And then he says, no, wait, not for seven weeks. If we were to practice this presence continuously for seven days, I say awakening would occur. And it's one of the places where the Buddha is most definitive and clear about it just saying, you know, one and one equals two. With the practice of presence and mindfulness, when it is continuous, there is no doubt that the heart-mind awakens. Great grounds for confidence. So what is it? What is mindfulness or presence? It is the capacity to know our experience. So right now we no, I know I'm talking. You know that you're hearing. It is the capacity not only to know the experience, but to, 
turn consciousness in an ongoing way towards it. So it's said that the opposite of mindfulness is like a cork that floats on the surface of water. It just bobs away, which is the distracted mind. The distracted mind is the cork bobbing or floating away on the surface. Mindfulness is, is non-distraction. It is that capacity to connect with the experience, to know the experience, to be present for the experience, and to know it in a deep way rather than a superficial way. So it's said that mindfulness manifestation is non-superficiality. That is that we know the characteristics of the experience. So when Larry gave the guided meditation this morning, he said, you know, know the beginning of the breath, that know the characteristic of the experience and see how it is, uh, how, how it expresses itself all the way to the end. Because it is that penetration of the experience, that's one word. Another is that deep connection with the experience and the knowing of the experience that brings us into a full relationship with it. The, the <laughs> I, I think this is a, a difference between femme and butch, actually, which is that <laughs> the butch talk about mindfulness as um, neutral observation. So just to notice and observe the experience. As a femme, I talk about connecting with the experience. See where you are on the plane or even off that. Um, um, because for me, it feels like it's really about coming into relationship with the experience, knowing it, tasting it, tasting that experience, but not getting involved in it, not getting identified with it. So that it is that um, allowing of the guest, the visitor, to come into the guest house, this breath coming, knowing it, and then allowing it to leave. The sorrow coming, sweeping the house clean. Oh, grief, that, that, that heart trembling, the tears coming to that, our eyes, that sadness, sweeping the house clean, coming, knowing it, rocking it and allowing it to leave. That's, that is presence in the kind of mindfulness that the Buddha was talking about. This touching, opening, receiving, connecting, and not becoming involved, not identifying, owning, or possessing. So um, I, um, as I was writing this Dharma talk, I was um, thinking about one of the three-month retreats I did at Insight Meditation Society and um, finding you know, the places where I like to walk. The three-month retreat happens in winter, and so sometimes it's like really cold. Well, not for everyone, but for me. So I used to go down to, it's changed now, but what was the bowling alley? There was actually an, a piece of um, really gorgeous wood at, in, um, in the basement of IMS that was like an old bowling alley. They actually even had old balls there. This is in the, I can't remember when my first three-month retreat was 84 or 85 or something. So, um, and, and there was just a kind of narrow path and I would like pretty much zip down there to, to walk back and forth along this uh, um, 
the corridor by the bowling alley. Because there wasn't much space, then if you got there first, pretty much, you know, you would, you would get to have it by yourself. And I, so I'm practicing mindfulness and, you know, and someone comes and, and comes to the opposite end and starts walking to me. And I'm like, this is really what, what I thought. You fucker. <laughs> so, so um, here's, you know, so here is just a little story of what's beautiful about mindfulness. Because in being present, then here in this moment is the visitor to the guest house, that contraction, that sense of, this is my space. What are you doing here? You know, the sense of ownership, the possessiveness. And um, if there's no mindfulness, the Buddha says this is the beginning of suffering. This is, this is the expression of suffering, this ownership of an experience and identification with it. If there is mindfulness, it's like, wow, wow knockout experience. I mean, the contraction was intense around this walking corridor. You know, it was like this, it could have been a hundred million dollars. I felt so strongly about that this was mine and someone else was taking what was not freely offered, you know. (laughs) So just really letting that sweep through in the space of mindfulness then becomes this guest entering the house and leaving, knowing, tasting the experience. That's the beauty of mindfulness, is that it allows the experience, whatever the experience, to come and go. And that's where the purification is. We get caught, so just to name that, we get caught. And some of us talked about getting caught um, this afternoon. So I want to add this addendum because in naming what the practice is, we also need to name what happens when we fail in the practice. So in that particular case, I was able to catch it and allow that guest to come and sweep the house. There were many other times when I didn't. So another example is that they had these particular chairs in the library when they had a library at IMS. And um, I I had a really um, bad back at that point. And so I did a lot of sitting in the chair. And there was this one chair that was just a perfect fit for me. And one day I came into the library and it was gone. And I was so outraged that someone had taken my chair. I haven't told anyone this before. (laughs) That I I, I, I wrote a note to the office saying, well, you know, I've really found this chair useful and comfortable and I wondered where it went and I didn't hear anything from them. So I sort of stormed into the office, broke silence and said, where are the chairs? So I got totally involved in in that particular storyline. When we do, it's really easy for the mind because the mind, the habitual mind has such a, a... Um, an expression of duality, to judge ourselves as, wow, you know, that isn't practice. Well, I've really failed. Well, I'm really a lousy practitioner. 
What's beautiful about this practice is that it both names the practice and also acknowledges the failure with our capacity to forgive. So just now, I want to invite you to look at any place today where you described your experience as somewhere as a failure of practice. And see if you would like to forgive yourself for that. Because that is actually the way to come back into the practice, to acknowledge that not only are we inviting ourselves to mindfulness, but we're also holding our failures because we all are failing over and over again in terms of forgetting and getting caught in the storylines. Can I forgive myself and allow myself to be a student of life and still to be learning? Can I forgive myself? Just for the places that I've judged myself, I watch myself constantly judging myself around all kinds of things. Sometimes I forget there's no mindfulness, there's no presence, there's no connection to that, and I believe it, and I'm on the train. And it's painful, isn't it? It's painful to get on that train and believe our judgmental thoughts, or believe our shame, or believe our craving and clinging, or anger and hatred and envy. We all do. So in naming mindfulness we all, and, and not forgetting, we also can name what happens when we forget and call up the practice of forgiveness and loving kindness. And that is the, the sister or the, um, the complement or the brother or the gender-neutral companion <laughs> to mindfulness is this capacity to partner the mindfulness with loving-kindness so that on the one hand we have this invitation to be present and then on the other we have this capacity to forgive and to say, wow, I'm a student still learning on this path. So um, um, mindfulness isn't actually devoid of loving-kindness. It is an expression of loving-kindness, actually. And also, as beginners in the practice of mindfulness, we can take a specific practice of loving-kindness to partner it and to frame the mindfulness in the understanding that no matter what our experience is, we are always deserving of loving-kindness. So no matter what our experience, we are always deserving of loving-kindness and never deserving of our judgment, never, ever deserving of our judgment. So in this tradition, the Buddha says that the judgment comes out of aversion and has no wisdom in it. Aversion has no wisdom in it, and so just to kind of take that, even if you don't get it um, sort of bodily, just to take it intellectually and explore it. Wow, judgment has no wisdom. 
It is a reaction of the mind based in aversion, which is always blind. It's really good news because then, in a way, there's nothing that falls outside of the practice because then even judgment becomes an area for us to discern, oh, judgment, oh wow, not true, oh, I can forgive myself for judging, I got lost, and then in that forgiveness create the grounds for mindfulness again. So beautiful. So, um, um, so one of the, just to uh, mention, uh, one of the people who most manifests that for me is the Dalai Lama. And I read a review of his book uh, recently by a new author, Pico, Eco, Eo, I've forgotten exactly. And um, I, you probably know there are many books about him. Each author, each person says the same thing. When I interviewed the Dalai Lama, he treated me as though I was the only person in the world. He gave that much presence and love that each person who interacted with them, him felt that she or he was the most important person in the world. That's our capacity to bring in both mindfulness and loving-kindness. To treat each guest in coming into our guest house with that same kind of, you are the most important thing happening in the world right now. Can I be present for you? And when we can't, no problem. I'm a student of life and I'm still learning. And this stuff is kind of tricky. I forgive myself. So, um, so then um, I wanted to. Um, um, so then I wanted to go to. Um, so then, what actually are the experiences? Just to uh, lay it out more formally, that we're being mindful of, because the Buddha actually gave a whole sequence of things and particularly to be mindful and present to. And um, the first one we've been working with is the body. You might have touched for a moment what happens when we let go of the label body and actually experienced the elemental expression of it. And, and what's beautiful about experiencing the elemental expression of the body, that is pressure, hardness, which is an expression of the earth, hot, cold, an expression of temperature, um, vibration, an expression of air, and connectedness is an expression of water. What, why would the Buddha invite us to this elemental expression of the body? It's because when we do, that sense of contraction of owning this is my body begins to fall away and we open into that cosmic connection with life that we took refuge in yesterday, um, yesterday evening. That when we let go of that um, 
by being mindful of the body, something opens up and we see this interplay of elements just as the cosmos is an interplay of elements. It is the, it is the, um, the sun, it is the earth, it is the, wet, the waters, it is this interplay of elements. The Buddha said our body is no different. It is this interplay of elements and that when we, when we sometimes go outside and that, that touching of all those elements opens our heart and we're like, wow, it's so beautiful. It's magical outside because in that moment there isn't any ownership. There's presence to the elemental expression of life. We have that same capacity inside of us. So it isn't even my breath anymore. It's vibration, temperature, stretching, pulling, elemental expression, coolness in this moment, and then uh, that sense of, of movement, vibration again, air expression, just life expressing itself outside and inside my body. So the Buddha said, to know the breath, the long breath, short breath, uh, um, and uh, the different expressions of the breath, and then to know the elemental expression of the breath and body. And then he said to know how the body is in its stretching to reach um, something on the shelf, in its um, walking, in turning around, in urinating, in defecating, in um, eating, in actually he names all the activities of our life and says we can be mindful of all of these. And um, because of the setup um, in terms of building the concentration of mindfulness, it's easy to think that, and we say this over and over again, that you know sitting on your cushion is the most important part. It isn't. Sitting is the technique that supports mindfulness. It could be, and this happened, this was true for Ananda, that Ananda, the attendant for the Buddha, awakened as his head hit the pillow. So he was mindful of the movement of his head hitting the pillow as he was getting into bed. It's also said that when um, the Buddha was eating with, uh, with the Sangha, with the community, the ordained community, that in giving a guidance of eating meditation, there were, it said in one of the suttas, thousands of people awakened through eating, that, that chewing, that noticing your tongue and what it's doing with the food, that saliva, that swallowing, and just seeing what happens. What was the awakening? What was the happening again? Wow, there's nothing here I can call me or mine. There's just chewing and tongue and saliva. It's just the elemental expression. It's this body chewing and digesting of its own. There's nothing I can say, what is me? Is, are these, is this hard me? No, is this saliva, wetness? No, it's saliva. It's not me. It's just this wetness that's part of how the mouth is constituted. So just that presence, deep presence into the experience, awakening. Oh my God, I'm part of the universe. So just to say that 
in, in, in this uh, what we're doing with the meditation it, and the body it's, and walking, it's great. But to be careful not to, not to fall into the trap of thinking that all those other activities that the Buddha speaks to in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness aren't important. They are. They're really important. And then um, I, I'm going to um, zip along because uh, it's getting a late. So he talks about the process of the disintegration of our bodies at death. And um, I, I won't go into that, but maybe in my next Dharma talk I will because it's gorgeously gruesome. And, um, <laughs> and go on to the next thing that he invited us to, and that is the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And this is really quite amazing to me. But in every moment, and actually it's more than every moment, from, um, according to our karma, each moment has this flavor of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's said that um, in the very beginning, if I look at you, there is um, this, this sort of perception of you, each one of you sitting here. And with that perception, immediately is the experience of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's happening over and over and over and over again. Some people find the, weather, the cool very pleasant and other people find warmth very pleasant. Some people find mangoes pleasant and others find chard pleasant. We all find different things pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. What's really important about the guests of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that sweep through our house is that when we identify with those energies, without mindfulness, we move into the mistaken um, misunderstanding that by collecting more pleasant experiences or by getting rid of unpleasant experiences, we will build the conditions for our happiness. That's, that's the that's the trap of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. There is nothing wrong with them in themselves. They are a characteristic of life. But when we're not mindful, instead of coming back to our faith that mindfulness is the refuge, we get caught in identifying with pleasantness and wanting more of it, or the discomfort of unpleasantness and wanting less of it. And you have seen that over and over again, and I know you have seen that movement towards, like, you know, that beautiful breath, and I watched it this morning, I had this breath, and it just went down and down, and it was like, you know those, um, those ads for um, toothpaste where, you know, it's like sparkling water, you know, everywhere, and the sun is shining on the water, and it's so sparkly clean, and it just, that breath felt like that, so sparkly, clean, delicious, it was like, and I watched my mind, literally, it was like so great, it was like this claw, 
grabbing onto the next breath. So then I was in contraction in the next breath, and then I didn't want the contraction, and I was in this almighty war, you know, of not wanting the contraction because I wanted the pleasure. I mean, it's so great to see, isn't it? That is the habitual mind, and that's what we get to notice. You know, so just to notice that whole movement of the mind, and in the noticing, we have the capacity to disengage from it. Because we're not really in control of what's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But we are in control of noting it, of being mindful of it. And in actually being mindful of it, the pleasure is really more exquisite anyway. When there's no attachment to pleasure, it's exquisite. So um, there have been moments I adore chocolate, and so some of you have been very sweet and sometimes give me chocolate. And so on retreat, you know, especially before a Dharma talk, just to help um, my support my um, the opening of my energy, I'll sit there by my desk and I'll take a piece of chocolate, and it sometimes feels orgasmic, you know, that the waves of flavor that come. And when there isn't any attachment, it's just a pleasure, and you know it's going to come to an end. And somehow that knowing, holding it in that impermanence, makes it even sweeter. Just this, you know, this pleasure. So really, in a way, we can't lose. By being mindful to pleasure, it becomes exquisite. The, the trick is, of course, that it's so seductive to lose that relationship and move into the craving around it. So um, mindfulness to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And then the, that's the second foundation. The third foundation is mindfulness to our emotions and our thoughts. Uh, just to, um, you, uh, just to acknowledge you're listening, we're close to 45 minutes. Thank you for being so present and attentive. I promise you I'm going to end soon. The third foundation is not only in noticing um, our thoughts and our emotions, but particularly the ways that we have constructed these as a defense against being vulnerable. Um, it just blows me away, the particular... Um, configurations that I've taken on because it's scary to be vulnerable and really to be open to life without the identification of roles. And so one of the big things for me is around being a teacher. And I notice sometimes how it creeps in, this identification with being a teacher and the contraction, I mean, I notice my shoulders kind of like tighten up like this. You know, my walking is kind of tight. And it happens because, because I'm scared. And I don't mean I'm scared really, but that there's fear that comes up. Fear around, you know, am I going to be able to communicate with you? You know, fear, and, and is it going to work out the retreat or all kinds of different ways that each one of us might feel fear in our lives around the places uh, where we've created identity. What about as a lover? What about being attractive enough? You know, what about um, um, uh, 
um, being youthful, you know, and I, and I notice, you know, the disintegration of my body, whatever it is. It's not just that we're noticing our thoughts and the emotions that um, um, are, are entangled with them, but the particular pattern of those that come up as a defense against the vulnerability of really opening the doors and windows of our guest house and allowing whatever the experience is. And so I went after my chocolate, I went for a little walk, and I was like, wow, I'm scared. And, and it's like, I can't tell you how many Dharma talks I've given. I've been teaching for 20 years, and it fear comes up, you know, and the defense is, you know, I've been teaching for 20 years, I shouldn't be scared. You know, and that's the armor. But the reality is I am. That is how it is. And that's the invitation for all of us, is can we open that guest house to allow it as it is? And that's what the Buddha was inviting us to in the third foundation of mindfulness. Can we open to and allow that movement of different emotions and thoughts and notice particularly that ongoing patterning so that we don't identify with them and build that defense and storyline that's described as ego. So um, I, I, want to, um, I want to come to closure and, and um, just end by saying that the fourth foundation is um, understanding our experience in the context of these teachings, in the context of particular teachings, um, which I can go into at a later date. We have not come here to take prisoners but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to befriend those aspects of obedience that stand outside of our house and shout to our reason, oh please, oh please, come out and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever and ever more deeply our divine courage, freedom and light. So let's take a moment. <coughs> no matter what we are feeling in this moment, we have the capacity to bow down, to 
to our divine courage or to honor our unique expression of life, each one of us, divine, unique spirit. honoring ourselves and our confidence in awakening. to uh, 